electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Does today's softer-than-expected jobs report reignite the rally as the major averages move closer to new highs? We'll debate where your money goes from here with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer, Boston Private Wealth. Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi. Big week for her this week. Jim Labenthal here, the farmer, along with Pete Nigerian. Let's check the markets, which after that soft jobs report, once again edging towards new record highs, perhaps on the belief that the Federal Reserve will be more patient before making any changes to its bond buying effort. We'll get to all of that in just a moment, along with Apple's five week slump and what that means to your money. But first, New at noon and Bill Ackman's big play for a piece of Universal Music Group through his SPAC Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. I spoke with Ackman a little while ago. He told me he was very excited about that deal and that he expects it to be signed later this month, likely by June 22nd. It's a complex deal, as you've heard, for sure. But if you look at recent analyst reports, as I did, it would suggest that Ackman is getting a pretty good deal. Goldman, for example, in a report published last month right here, they put gold, uh, Universal Music Group's valuation $44 billion, whereas Ackman's deal would have an enterprise value of some $35 billion, a significant discount, at least by Goldman's calculations made last month. Further, if you look at an apples-to-apples apples comparison to where, say, Warner Music currently trades, the price Ackman is paying is about a 10 to 15 percent discount, and Warner is the number three player in the industry behind both Universal and Sony, according to data I saw from earlier this year. It's also a more levered company in comparison with Universal and comes with fewer voting rights for shareholders, given that company's control structure. By comparison, Universal has the most market share in the U.S., about 41 percent and 30 percent market share globally. It's also been taking share. Margins have been increasing, as like many players in the space, it's been benefiting from the tremendous growth in streaming. But there is more. Ackman's investors will also get roughly five dollars in cash in what remains of Tontine, which essentially now becomes a smaller version of itself with a billion and a half dollars in cash to go looking for something to go look for something opportunistic to buy. And they'll get an opportunity to participate in what Ackman is calling a special purpose acquisition rights company. It's a mouthful or a spark, which will trade on the New York Stock Exchange and what is essentially a long dated option or warrant to take part in the next deal. Unlike a SPAC, though, there's no time limit on when Ackman has to find a target, which means he doesn't face that pressure to do a deal. And investors get to opt in if they like it, if they like what he ultimately finds. In other words, they don't have to put up any money up front. And if they don't like the deal, they don't have to participate and can sell. Take a look at shares today of Ackman's SPAC, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, down by about 11 percent. Our Leslie Picker following the money, as always. So there's no more mystery of what he was looking at. <laughs> now the question is sort of what happens next and what you make of what the stock is doing right now, Les. 
Exactly. The question, at least on Reddit forums right now, especially those who were hoping for an acquisition of Subway or an acquisition of some of these other companies that were, you know, being kind of bantied about on these forums, is what does he do with this so-called spark? As you mentioned, it's interesting because uh, Ackman is historically known for sparring with CEOs in traditional activism roles. Now he's created this new term, spar, uh, which is part of the spark. These are the special purpose acquisition rights shares, which will be publicly traded. This is kind of like a almost like a bonus as part of the transaction for current shareholders. They get these rights uh, to potentially participate in the next deal if they choose to. If not, they can sell these rights to other shareholders uh, or, or other people who are interested. So now the question becomes, what do you do with the next purchase. Now, this the way this transaction is structured, they actually have more than $10 billion in purchasing power to do another deal here. Um, the first deal, this Universal Music Group deal, isn't actually a reverse merger in a traditional sense. It's more of a, a, a shareholder, uh, or I'm sorry, a... Uh, a shareholder swap there um, because Vivendi is taking that company public later this year. Uh, the shareholders in the SPAC won't, the deal will close before they actually have a publicly traded um, share that they can work with in Universal Music Group. So kind of an interesting, unique situation there. Now, the next one is what people are looking to and people are hoping that maybe they're company that they've been banking on this whole time will be what he uses with this whole spark structure. It's, it's confusing, right? Um, you know, Andrew and, and David have, have been doing a great job trying to explain it um, to everybody because it's just different, Leslie, than what I think a lot of investors expected, not only in the target, mm-hmm. but in the structure of, of what we have here, because it's really not a SPAC, even though investors got into this in the first place thinking it would be a traditional, if there is such a thing for such a, you know, thing, um, a traditional SPAC. Uh, and then the target, remember, Airbnb was the name that was was thrown around all over the place. And this is not that. <laughs> yep. Airbnb was thrown all over the place. Bloomberg was thrown all over the place. It's interesting because you see these dialogues take form where people are so convinced that it's going to be a particular target. People were so invested and had been anticipating the day where a DA or a definitive agreement was signed. And it's important to note that it has not been signed yet. Uh, This is still preliminary. And as you mentioned, the deal could still fall apart, uh, although it's expected to be closed or at least signed uh, later this month. Um, but people were, were staking their hopes and dreams on what this particular deal was. Universal Music Group wasn't one that we saw pop up. I, I don't think I ever saw it pop up, although, you know, it's impossible to say with tens of thousands of comments on these forums. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a slower growing I, company than I think a lot of people anticipated. Um, and it's one that was already set to go public. And so it wasn't a company that people were looking at, a private company, traditional reverse merger into the public markets. It's a different structure. Uh, it's a very outside the norm in terms of SPAC world. And in traditional sure. Bill Ackman form, uh, he's kind of rewriting the rules here. Yeah. The and rules he, are, I mean, he's abiding by the rules, yeah, but yes. putting his own spin on yeah. it. Yeah. And speaking <laughs> of the rules, I mean, he was limited, obviously, in, in what he could, could say to me, but it was clear he was excited about what he brought to the market today. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, as I said, 
following the money, as always. Speaking of the money, let's take a look at the major averages uh, once again, because we are reacting, of course, to today's softer than expected jobs report. And maybe by virtue of the gains you see on your screen here, Dow good for about 100. S&P, it's not the best levels of, of the morning session. S&P is good for 27, two-thirds of a percent. NASDAQ's the big winner today. Well, why? Because maybe the market thinks the Fed is going to be more patient before it starts to taper. Liz Young, is, is that your read? Is that what this reaction says? Like, chill out with this worry that the Fed's going to do something tomorrow? <laughs> Yes, I do think that's the breed right now. And I think the market is reacting to the fact that we had a jobs report that missed expectations, but we still added more than 550,000 jobs. So this is sort of steady as she goes. And it reinforces the Fed's statement, we're going to be data dependent. I said today that the Fed is going to be labor data dependent. This just keeps them in play. This keeps them here. It keeps them holding steady. And I don't think we should expect them to change their narrative anytime in the next few months. As we move through the rest of the year and as we get into 2022, the story changes a little bit. And, and I think it changes because once we get back to prior levels of GDP, so pre-crisis levels of GDP, that's when we create new organic growth in the economy. That's when we have a garden variety recovery story. And hopefully jobs do come back and the Fed doesn't feel as trepidatious. Yeah. Pete, uh, Tom Lee, no surprise, bullish, right? He, um, He's not wavering, <laughs> even with the churn that we've been seeing and some of the activity. And we said we're not all that far away from new highs as we continue to move higher today. He says, quote, we still believe equities are risk on. We see the S&P 500 reaching 4,400 by the first half of 2021. Remember, he had pulled forward his optimistic expectations yeah. for stocks. That's in the next four weeks, going to 44. Um, and then we'll see. And it's going to be led by epicenter stocks. Did, did the jobs report just give the rally that excuse to take that next leg higher? You know, it sure may have, Scott. I mean, it feels that way. It directly, we watched it move the second we got that jobs report. So I would say the reaction was exactly that. And I think Liz broke it down very nicely. I mean, the idea that the Fed's watching, they are data dependent, they'll be continuing to watch. But as of now, it's just steady as she goes. And that's exactly what we are seeing. And that's a very big positive thing, I think, generally thought for the markets themselves. And we're seeing the NASDAQ really outperform. They're both performing very nicely, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P as well, throw that in there. But the NASDAQ has certainly been the leadership today. You know, each and every day we see different leadership. But the strength that we're seeing out of the NASDAQ today does make a statement to me that Folks are very comfortable with some of these growth stocks, with some of these very speculative stocks, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. And you look at volatility, Scott, volatility is, is once again starting to creep that much lower. Even with some of the crazy moves that we've had in different sections of the market, we are watching volatility just kind of ease back into those teens and now into the 16s. It tells me that people are feeling very, very comfortable right now, well, whether they should be or not. That's, that, that's something for the future. Well, I, I mean, may, may, maybe they should be, Shannon, by virtue of a jobs report that suggests there's a long way to go. And the Fed probably reads that and thinks the same thing and says we're going to be patient regardless of what the market thinks or what the market wants. Rates have not been exploding higher. So why shouldn't we be comfortable investing in growth and investing in tech as long as the environment remains as what I just said it will? 
there's a counter argument to that. And, and, and again, I, you know, with the way that we're structured in our portfolios, we're certainly barbelled to some cyclical exposure as well as uh, plenty of quality tax. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of both sides of my mouth, but I would say we're coming into a difficult period here. So we've got about four weeks till the end of the quarter three weeks or so. And we're not going to have any, you know, earnings season's over, essentially. We have a few more reports next week. Um, and so I think it's important that each of these successive um, data points is going to be important because every single time we get a piece of economic data, we're going to be thinking about, is the housing market slowing? Is inflation creeping higher? You know, this jobs report, we're continuing to look at claims on a weekly basis. Now we're going to start to take all of these data points and go down to the second and third levels. You know, where are the jobs coming from? Are there areas of the market or areas of the economy that have rebounded quickly over the course of the last few months? Is that rebound slowing? Are we getting any sort of plateauing? So I don't disagree with Tom's um, enthusiasm about the potential for a, you know, tailwind in the Fed um, coupling with with just an improving economic environment, as well as a clear sense of reopening if anybody has been to a restaurant um, in the last several days in, in, in some of the uh, the states that were not as open. Um, but I do, I do want to caution that there could be some fits and starts here over the next four weeks or so, just because the only thing that we have to look at is economic data. So Farmer Jim, if I were to tell you, okay, we're still seven and a half million jobs light, right, from, from pre-pandemic levels, Fed doesn't go to Jackson Hole until later in the summer. And that, you would think, would be the time that they would lay the groundwork for any taper talk if there was one publicly. That leaves a little bit of a runway here, does it not? It leaves, it leaves runway, Scott, in which I think we're going to be stuck in the mud. Um, and this is what I said to you, I think, last week. I think you got a few weeks at least, maybe more, of sideways trading here. Why? Um, here's a fun fact. Why? Uh, well, why, here's right? a fun fact. I think that's what because I'm going to Because you're going no, to get no resolution. No, I'll, I'll give you a second. You're going to get I'll, no I'll resolution. Oh, my God. I'll come back to you in, just, in, in a second. But why wouldn't you be on more, to use your analogy, more solid footing? Right. If if the environment I just I just said is like, OK, you don't have to worry about the Fed and, you know, you don't have to worry about rates rocketing and, and maybe inflation ripping. Why isn't it more solid footing rather than mud? Because you have no resolution. You have no solid ground. You have no resolution on inflation. Four business days from now, we're going to get the CPI. Remember what happened last month? You had a weak jobs report. The market ripped. And then four days later, you got the CPI, and it was much hotter than expected. The market tanked. Now, I don't know what CPI is going to be next week, but I suspect it's not going to be tame. So there's no resolution on inflation. There's no resolution on taxes. There's no resolution on infrastructure spending. I don't think you're going to get any catalyst to move this market higher until second quarter earnings season. And maybe even that's not enough because we saw what happened first quarter. But I do think second quarter earnings will be positive and possibly will break us out of the mud. But that's a month away. I think we're sideways. There's no resolution in the next month on any of the factors that are facing the market. So wouldn't you just, Liz, just trade what you have in front of you? I mean, we need to see, a, to use Jim's word, a resolution on all of these issues. The market's not going to wait around. It's going to anticipate. That's what it does, right? It has nothing yeah, to it anticipate. It, there's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing. If you locked the five of us in a room and said, crunch the data and analyze it and tell me the outcome, Jim, there is no way to confidently say what's going to happen with inflation. Jim, I don't know if I'm going to get hit by a bus on Monday, but I'm going to go out <laughs> to dinner on Saturday. 
I'm not going to sit in the house worried Roll that I'm going to get hit baby. by that bus that may not hit me. Isn't investing in this market yeah, the that's same not, I way? I don't think that's a. I don't think that's the I don't think that's the correct uh, comparison because analysts like all of us on the show, we want to look at the data. We want to predict what's going to happen with confidence. We can't do it right now, Scott. We can't predict what's in, whether inflation is transitory or entrenched. I happen to think it's transitory. I happen to believe Jay Powell, but there's not a great deal of confidence in that assessment. So the market, yeah, it anticipates, but it doesn't know what to anticipate right now. All right, Shannon, who wants a piece of this right now? Who, who, who thinks that now is the time to sit on your hands because you don't have clarity on, you know, that issue among among some others. But, but besides Jim, Shannon, Jim's going to go ride off into the I sunset on his tractor and wait this thing out. <laughs> What's the strategy for everybody else? That's right. <laughs> I think it depends on where you're talking about. I mean, if you look at this potential for accelerating economic growth globally and you look at valuations that are available even in the small cap space, but more importantly, outside of the United States in emerging markets, um, or if you look at even U.S. multinationals that have you know, emerging markets exposure, wow, it seems like there's certainly some opportunities here. I think we spend a lot of time, because they're important parts of the market, talking a lot about the fangs. And I think this is a great opportunity to start talking about things that are outside of the fangs, start, start talking about other ways to derive growth in your portfolio based on this economic tailwind that I believe is going to persist for many years. We may have fits and starts. Again, there may be a little bit of a pullback. We may see some weakness around tapering. Um, but I I think if you're looking at the next four weeks or so, and there are opportunities to add to your exposure to set your portfolio up for the next three or four years, you absolutely should be doing that. So, Pete, you know, maybe maybe Jim is is going to be right. Maybe he's right now and maybe he's going to be right because let's go in the fangs, because if Apple can't really get its act together, don't you think it's going to be hard for the overall market to take that next leap? Apple's trying to avoid a six week losing streak. You don't see that very often. The stock has been stuck in the mud, to use Jim's thing again. It's at 125. It's getting a little bit of a lift today, but it's done next to nothing. And it is the most valuable company on earth. It's owned by just about everybody who ever, anyone who ever comes on this program and a lot of people who watch it too. Right. And we've hit the pause button. You're exactly right, Scott. I think what you have to look at is I think it's healthy that it's not just Fang leading. And I've said that for weeks and now probably even months. It's great to see other aspects of the marketplace take a lot of that leadership role as we've hit the pause button. And I know that you know this, Scott, as well. But if you give one year ago, we were looking at Apple trading at 82 and here we are at 125. And you'd say, wow, that's a pretty nice performance. All of that performance came between a year ago and November. And then we've been essentially paused ever since. So I understand frustration. I understand everybody's expression of dead money and everything else. But I think the reality is this stock still had a really nice gain. And then it stopped and paused. And we have other parts of the market. It almost was a baton toss, literally, where it was passed along right away from the fangs to the financials, to energy, to uh, you know the industrials, to the materials. And that, I think, was a powerful and a good thing for the markets. And that's why we are seeing where the markets are, which is really just pushing upon all-time highs once again. So when the fangs start to kick in once again, maybe it is something as simple as WWDC. That could be a catalyst for 
for Apple, and, and well, we'll see. We've had some huge call buying in there today, Scott. From so, you, too. Sorry. Uh, from, from, you, from you, too, right? Yeah. You, you bought new calls in Apple, and to your point, that's what Katie yep. Huberty, your favorite analyst, thinks, that WWDC could actually be a bigger catalyst than it's been in years past and maybe what some are expecting, and that's on Monday. But your new Apple call right. buy suggests that you're, you're bullish in the near term. Right. And they were what they were buying, just so people understand, of the June 129 calls, pretty substantial, like 14,000 of those. But what made those interesting for me is that does fit into this calendar of what we're talking about, WWDC. And let's look at Apple for just a moment. Everybody wants to say it's stretched and everything else. If you look at the P.E., you look at the forward P.E. of the 23, then you start to look at where their margins have increased and, and what they're doing there and the earnings and the strength and the free cash flow, 80 or 90 billion dollars. I think you're looking at a stock that, yes, it's paused. It made that dramatic run to the upside. It paused. I think we're ready for another move to the upside as we get a little bit deeper. And maybe the ultimate catalyst right now, at least, would be WWDC. But the second half of the year, Katie also has discrepancy with others who think that China's starting to slow down in terms of smartphones. That doesn't seem to be the perspective that her and the team over at Morgan Stanley are talking about. They see this much differently right now in the second half of the year as well. Farmer Jim, you've played this thing more in the last few months. Is this going to be stuck yeah. in the mud with everything else, too? Yeah, well, thanks for the question, because stuck in the mud, you know, if I'm saying for the next three weeks, that says nothing about the next three years. Both the markets and Apple, Apple, yes, I think are going to be much higher over the next one and three years. I think we got to have some perspective here. The last five years, it's returned 40% compound annual growth rate. It's been stuck in the mud for nine months. That's a fact. Everything I just said is factual. What do I think is going to happen? I think that when you get to the next earnings season, uh, which is you know probably six weeks away, I don't know the exact date, I think they'll give you another blowout earnings. And this time, I think the earnings will hold. Why? Because nine months is an awfully long time for a stock like this to consolidate. The quality of its business is tremendous. One other thing, Scott, sorry, this is important. This okay. is important. Okay. All the time that the stock is down here, they're buying back shares. Now, for all of us who are long-term holders, we love that. Let them buy back the shares at these depressed prices, relatively speaking, because they're going to buy back more of them, and it's going to concentrate the earnings power of the shares that all of us hold. So you've got to look past the next three weeks. Yes, stuck in the mud, but by the end of this year, again, I've said this all along, 150 by the end of the year. I hadn't even, have, I hadn't even jumped in yet before you were going for your one more thing. So maybe you were anticipating something <laughs> you've that trained, didn't, that you've didn't trained happen. You've trained me well, I Scotty. Know. You've trained me well, Judge. <laughs> Thank you, Farmer Jim. Uh, Jenny Harrington's call, by the way, she called Apple. I, can't, I mean, I cannot believe that we're having this part of the conversation, but Jenny Harrington's the one who called Apple dead money, right? Would you have thought that someone would describe Apple as dead money? Well, since she made the call, she's been right. Shannon, you're underweight Apple shares, even though you own them. We trimmed the stock back in December, and, and really it was just a, you know, as a result of, of what we felt was some strength and then some of this consolidation that Jim just mentioned. Think about it this way, though. Number one most recognizable global brand has an installed base that continues to support continued monetization of services. So what? That's what the, that's what the market has said. They've said, so what? What have you done for me lately? Maybe WWDC is the what have you done for me lately. I think what you're actually going to see is you're going to have to see a handset switch from 6 and 6S upgrades into some real enthusiasm about 5G. Um, and I think that, you know, and I don't want to take away Weiss's enthusiasm about 5G, 
But I think that that's where the next catalyst for this stock is. But maybe the stuck in the mud over the course of the nine months starts people to look forward to say, why do I want to make sure that I'm in this stock for that next phase, for that next catalyst? Because the reality is, is that Apple is not going to slow down. They are going to continue to grow their services and grow that free cash flow that then they can do anything they want with. They can buy back shares. They can pay it out in special dividends. There's a lot of optionality with this company, and I think it's a great long-term hold as far as, as, far as a core in the portfolio. All right. Highs of the day for shares of Apple. We'll take a quick break. Up next, to say the least, it's been a wild week for AMC and the other so-called meme stocks. Pete Najarian has been active, as you know, in those names. We'll find out what he is seeing now in the options market and how he is trading them today because it, t- it changes moment by moment. And a reminder, you could always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The number of teens getting hospitalized with COVID rose this spring. The CDC says that the rate peaked in January bottomed out in March and then surged in April. About a third of those hospitalized were admitted to the ICU, although no deaths were reported. A woman shot in the head during a mass shooting near Miami has died. The 32-year-old is the third victim to die after being shot outside a banquet hall on Sunday. Still no arrest in this case. And a report soon to be released has found no evidence that aliens were responsible for more than 120 unexplained sightings by Navy personnel. That's according to the New York Times. The findings, though, leave open the possibility that the flying objects were created by other countries like China or Russia. UFOs still out there and still defying explanation. A look at what we do know about the latest sightings tonight on the news. And a very earthbound swarm of insects providing feasts at a Maryland zoo, birds, lizards, and turtles enjoying the endless supply of snacks there. Other animals, however, found the swarms annoying, including chimps and elephants. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel. Thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Well, been a wild week for AMC and other of those so-called meme stocks. Pete's been trading. And Pete, I'm looking. AMC's not doing much now. It's up 2%, but it has been quite a ride. You've been in the thick of it. Maybe you've been uh, holding uh, along the way, too. Uh, What about now? Yeah, it's really interesting, Scott. Yes, I am. I I took off a position today, but I still have some some options that actually extend out past today um, that I'm going to hold on to for a while and see what happens in this craziness. But, you know, I almost want to compare this, Scott, to, and I was talking to one of the producers, Patty, earlier about this, that it's almost like activism to, to a degree. Because when you look at the meme stocks, Let's really break that down as opposed to an individual activist investor or somebody who's out there shorting something, which is exactly what we've been seeing in most of these names. Uh, we are seeing the other side of this, uh, the Reddit crowd, the activist memes, whatever you want to call it. As that army comes together, they become a big force. And we have seen this squeeze many of these various names, whether that's BlackBerry or AMC or we're still looking. And we don't hardly talk about it, Scott, but... 
How about GameStop? This is not stopped in GameStop. This is still persisting there as well. It's just significantly different now as far as the short interest that it once was, but that's becoming the case in many of these various names. But the amount of volume that we are seeing day in and day out, 4 million contracts yesterday in AMC, 580 million shares trading in AMC, that name, Best Buy, or not Best Buy, excuse me, BlackBerry and others. It's just amazing, actually. Bed Bath & Beyond is another one that I would throw in there with Huge short interest and a lot of activity coming into that name as well. So it just seems like they've caught something. And this really goes back to January, but it's still extending. Well, you know, we, we lose it for a few weeks, and then all of a sudden it seems to pop back right and, up and right back again. Maybe, Pete, it's just morphed now. that it, It's just that the short squeeze angle is just too easy, mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply a, a momentum wave. And it's riding a very large wave of momentum that probably, you know, the activity today suggests that it has legs, that it's it's no longer trying to squeeze the, the shorts out of out of the business. It's simply riding the momentum that exists and it's proven to be a good trade. I would say that you uh, I would say that you're you're mostly right. I would say it's a combination, though, Scott. I mean, the reason that we are seeing some of what we are seeing and I think some of the pauses along the way as well is some of that covering when 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 some of these shorts are losing billions of dollars in a single day. I would think that there becomes a time where they're going to have to cover like we'd seen happen in GameStop and we've seen in some of the others where we've seen specific names that have come up that have had to cover and, and, and because they're, they're basically getting margin called. So it's a combination of that, but you're 100% right in terms of there's a lot to do with what's going on with the momentum and the options that people are triggering towards as well. Just going extremely far out of the money to buy options just you know, with, with basically hope that there's a possibility that they could move. And actually, they have seen some of that occur. I mean, earlier, just a week ago, believe it or not, we were talking about AMC trading in the 20s, and they were buying the 70-plus strike calls. Well, those actually came into play, Scott, when we hit 72 the other day. So it seems crazy, but maybe it's not as crazy as you and I would think it is. And, Jim, on that note, you know, your narrative has been, well, we know how this is going to end. It's going to end badly. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't, right? Maybe at least for AMC, which is now front and center, because they've been able to use this opportunity to raise the equity that they have, and coming out of the pandemic, they're advantageous in scooping up some distressed properties, that they actually have a good and bright future. And the people who've been betting on it all along are the ones who are actually going to have the last laugh if you want to call it that, rather than those like you who say, well, this is not just these people don't know what they're doing. This is not going to end well. It's all going to end badly. They're going to lose all their money, blah, 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 blah. What about that? I think AMC, I think AMC management's done a fabulous job raising capital. I mean, my hat is off to them. They've done exactly what they should do. I will uh, continue, though, to say that I've seen this movie before many, many times. Um, the likelihood that the people who are buying the stock in the 50s uh, make money on it is is low. It's low. But the catalyst, and here's where you're, you're going to be able to tell me I'm wrong for a while, because the catalyst is going to be when the Fed pivots and starts talking about at least tapering. That's going to be the catalyst that knocks this down. 
But this is not trading on fundamentals. It's not. There's no way an investor like me can value the business and come up with the current share price. It's just not reasonable. I've seen this movie many times, whether it's the web vans and e-toys and Planet RXs of the, of the late 90s or the countrywide financials and the Washington mutuals of the late aughts. I've just seen the movie too many times to, know how, to not know how it's going to end. Look, Bank of America has thrown in the towel on, on coverage. That's what they're saying today. Um, the price target on AMC was raised to $7.50 today from six fifty <laughs> at Wedbush. Obviously, the stock's trading north of 52 so make of that what you will. But we'll see, what all, we'll, we'll see where it goes next week. All right, we have bullish calls today on Lululemon. Northrop Grumman plus Ford gets a new street-high target. We'll discuss. We'll trade that next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, we're back. I have those bullish calls we talked about. Let's start with Northrop Grumman. Farmer Jim, you own Northrop Grumman. Price target today to 475 from 350 Upgraded to buy over at Stiefel. You, of course, have already had it as a buy. Right. Uh, it's been in a little stealth rally here. I've been talking about it on the show for the past month or so. What's happened here is defense stocks languished uh, for the last year, year and a half, on the premise that Democrats were not going to spend on defense. Well, they are going to spend on defense, but only certain parts of it, not tanks and ships. They're going to spend on missiles, on airplanes, on satellites. That's where Northrop Grumman excels. So I completely agree with this call. I think the 475 is a little bit aggressive. I like it, but I'm more in the 425 range, 425 to 450. Either way, it's got a nice rally and it's going to continue. 425, 450, 475. Let's not quibble. Uh, Lululemon, Pete, <laughs> price target raised to 405 at Cowan today. They remain outperform. Stock is up nearly 3% wow. right now. Of course, they beat and they raise their guidance as well. Yeah, really strong. Calvin McDonald's done an outstanding job, I think, navigating the company. And when you look at the e-commerce growth of 50%, 
They're just doing everything right, Scott. And I, I continue to like this company. I know that when you look at it from a PE standpoint, it is extremely high. There is no doubt about that. But they've got great projections going out into the rest of this year. And I think that growth, just the potential of that growth remains. And with the hybrid society that I think we're going to be in over the next year or two, I think that Lulu is going to be another strong run through 21, through 22, and then probably into 23. Okay. Take a look at shares of letter F, Ford. Today, the price target raised to 18 from 16 at J.P. Morgan. That is a new street high. Jim Labenthal, are you going to give Ford any love ever, or is it just a GM world and you're living in it? Ah, you know, I want to give Ford love. GM, look, Ford, you can make money in Ford, but you're going to make more money in GM. Uh, they just, they've just done a better job on the EV space and the autonomous vehicle space. I'm not, I'm not panning Ford, but I just, GM's the, the better stock. What do I do? How do I, how do I say that nicely? I don't know. Well, I don't, I mean, year to date, it's a nicer gain for Ford. Yeah. How about longer than year to date? I, I mean, look, you can go out um, to a lot of metrics. GM. Got to, I mean, you pick your metric, Farmer Jim. All right. How about from here to year end? Okay. All right. Let's see what happens, right? Let's see what happens over the, let's see between yeah. now and the, the remainder of the year. I mean, I have no clue, but whatever. We'll come back and revisit that. All right. Up next, Pete has unusual activity coming up when we come back. All right. Leslie Picker's back with us. She has breaking news regarding Facebook. Les? Hey, Scott, that's right. Facebook announcing that it has decided to uh, continue the suspension of President Trump's accounts on both Facebook and Instagram for two years, effective to the date of the initial suspension, which was January 7th of this year. Now, just some background here for those of you who may not remember that last month, the oversight board uh, that reviews these types of issues, they upheld Facebook's suspension of the former president, Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts. That was following the praise of people or for people that were uh, engaging in violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, in doing so, though, they ultimately instructed the company itself, instructed Facebook to review that decision and respond uh, accordingly. And so this is the response. The, the company said that they did decide to uh, uphold that suspension for two years, uh, dating back to January 7th. So January 7th, 2023 uh, is the date that we should be looking for with regard to the suspension, Scott. Okay. Something tells me we're going to hear from the former president regarding this issue, uh, perhaps momentarily. We'll see. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. All right, Pete, unusual. What do you see today? All right. I'm going to start with tapestry and that's coach. That's Kate Spade. The stock was trading around 41.35. As a matter of fact, yesterday they were buying the 43 and a half calls. Today, they're buying 5,000 of the next week expiring 41 calls, Scott. And so those are going for about $1.10, as I say, about 5,000 of those. Pretty good to see that twice, you know, in a row. So that, that one stood out for me. IQ's another one. Its stock was trading just around $14 a share. And we had a pretty large buyer, 15,000 of the June 14 calls. 10,000 in a single print. So those are big traders coming in there expecting to see a nice move to the upside there as well. Then I'm going to give you a quick update on Dropbox. We had John had some uh, unusual the other day, but he actually used it as a final trade in Dropbox. They were buying the June 29 calls pretty aggressively, Scott. They bought about 10,000 of those. That stock is really starting to move very rapidly towards 29. So just as a quick update, keep an eye on that one as well. All right. Appreciate that, Pete. Thank you very much. Coming up, Fighting the Thanks. hackers, the Justice Department taking a big step to combat cybercrime. We've got those details next. 
The recent cases of ransomware exposing just how frail critical supply chains are here in the United States. Now the Justice Department issuing new guidance to combat the growing risk of cybercrime. Eamon Javers is at the DOJ with the person leading that charge. It's a CNBC exclusive. Eamon? Scott, that's right. I'm here at the Department of Justice with Lisa Monaco. She's the Deputy Attorney General. And thank you so much for having us here, first of all. Uh, and secondly, what can you tell us about what the changes are here at the Department of Justice in terms of the way you're going to handle these ransomware cases going forward? So many cases in the headlines just over the past two weeks or so. Well, great to be with you, Eamon. Uh, look, what we are doing here at the Department of Justice is reflective of the threat that ransomware poses to national security and to economic security. What we've done in just the short time that I've been back at the department is directed a 120-day review of everything the department is doing to combat uh, cyber issues, including ransomware. We've established a ransomware and digital extortion task force to bring all of our tools to bear and ensure that we are going after these attack networks. And yesterday, just yesterday, I issued a directive to every federal prosecutor in the country that we need to treat ransomware attacks with the severity and the urgency that it merits. That means centralizing reporting back here to the Department of Justice from around the country. So we have a national and indeed a global picture of the threat of ransomware attacks, including the illicit use of uh, online infrastructure and networks that fuel these attacks. This morning in the Wall Street Journal, we saw the FBI director, Chris Wray, comparing this ransomware crisis that we're in right now to 9-11. Do you agree with that comparison? How does, it, how does it shake out for you? I absolutely agree that we need to treat ransomware and cyber attacks like the national security threat that they are. That's why we're taking the steps that we are across the department, indeed across the government. We need to have a national picture and we need to bring all of our tools to bear. Here at the Department of Justice, our job, of course, is to enforce the law and to protect Americans against threats from all types. And today, that means the exponential rise in ransomware attacks. And that means telling uh, corporate America and those who had organizations of all stripes what they can do and what they should be doing to address this threat. What does the U.S. government know about who's doing this, right? I mean, there are bad guys on the other end of the keyboard. They might be in Russia, former Soviet state. The most recent group we heard of was called Our Evil. Does U.S. law enforcement, U.S. intelligence know who these guys are and where they live? Well, we know that, indeed, the attacks, the most recent attacks, including against JBS Foods and against the Colonial uh, Pipeline, are linked to criminal actors, criminal groups uh, that are known to law enforcement, that have ties to Russia. Uh, and these are, uh, these are attackers who have struck before. And frankly, it is reflective of a threat that is ongoing today, Eamon, and indeed, as we speak, Companies are under attack uh, from ransomware attacks, from malicious cyber attackers, whether they're criminals, whether they're nation states, or whether they are what we call a blended threat of the two. The big question in all this is you've got these criminal gangs, some of them operating in Moscow. I mean, we've seen pictures of some of them doing donuts in their Lamborghinis and, and sort of spending all this money that they're making. How much control do you think Vladimir Putin has over these criminal gangs? Is this a direct control thing where he's ordering these attacks? Or is this sort of a hands-off approach by the Russian leadership saying, hey, you guys go cause mayhem and we're not going to mess with you? Well, what we know, Eamon, is that um, these attackers um, and uh, the criminal groups that fuel many of these attacks, including some of the recent ransomware attacks that we've seen, uh, come from groups that uh, have links to Russia. Uh, and what we know more broadly is we cannot give any quarter and no country should be harboring criminal actors of any type. 
But and it's that's, those, it's that's those our links, message. It's those links to Russia, right? How strong are those links? Are these people who are answering to the command and control of Vladimir Putin, or are these people who are out there in the Wild West doing what they do, and Putin is just allowing it to happen? Well, I'm not going to get ahead of the investigation. Obviously, these things are ongoing. Uh, these are both the most recent ransomware attacks are the subject of ongoing investigations. The message, I think, needs to be that no country should be harboring uh, malicious actors uh, of any type. And importantly, the message needs to be to the viewers here, to the CEOs around the country, that you've got to be on notice of the exponential increase of these attacks. And if you are not taking steps today, right now, to understand how you can make your company more resilient, how, what is your plan? If your uh, head of security came into you today and said, we've been hit, boss, what is your plan? Do you know and does your head of security know the uh, name and number of uh, the FBI uh, leader in your area who deals with ransomware attacks? These are steps you've got to be taking right now today to make yourselves more resilient. But these are st national strategic resources, right? It's fu uh, fuel. It's food. It's the things we need to run our society. Right now, it's a ransomware attack where if you pay, allegedly, you get the cryptocurrency, you get the crypto key back and you can reopen your systems. What if there's an attack where it's not ransomware and they simply shut these things down as a hostile nation state? Is the United States prepared for that? Well, and we've seen attacks of that type, nation state uh, driven attacks. Um, this is exactly why we need a whole of government. And we are um, putting forth a whole of government uh, approach to this. The threat to critical infrastructure, the threat to companies uh, of across all sectors is very real. But the most important thing we can be doing is not allowing ourselves to be victimized in the first place. The biggest difference, Eamon, between a company and a CEO who uh, heads a company that will be paying out millions of dollars uh, in uh, damages, uh, and taking a hit to their brand is whether or not they're investing today in making their company more resilient. That means investing in backups that are not connected to the Internet. So you can come back up online quickly and not be beholden to the criminal actors on the other side of the keyboard. Speaking of coming back up, JBS this week, the meat producer, they got up and running pretty quickly after their cyber attack was announced on Sunday and back to full production l later in the week. Did they pay a ransom? I don't know the answer to that. Um, do you think that the government should know whether these companies are paying ransoms or not? Yes, I think we need to know. I think the investigators that they should be uh, working with, this is why we really want companies to come forward to cooperate with the FBI on this, uh, because the preferred method these days from the bad actors here is, as we know, to be paid, for instance, in cryptocurrency, in digital right. currency. Well, you're familiar with the phrase, follow the money. That's true in old-time uh, crimes, and it's true today. That means investigators, the FBI, has got to be able to follow that money. We've got to be able to work up the chain to go after these networks, to disrupt the entire network, and keep other companies and other institutions from being victimized. Cryptocurrency is a huge topic here because this just couldn't happen without the cryptocurrency fueling it, right? So what new regulations do you want to see on cryptocurrency? And are you happy with the cooperation you've gotten or not from the cryptocurrency exchanges so far? Well, look, I think the, the use of cryptocurrency uh, can have you know, many good applications, of course, but we have to be mindful of the misuse, the abuse of 
criminal actors in this space. That's why we really need um, both the exchanges and companies who are going to be working um, with them to cooperate with the FBI to enable us to follow that money, uh, to be able to us to trace um, the, the use by bad actors of digital currency, because as I said, it's the preferred method these days, and it's a critical feature of our investigations. Now, we don't always see corporate America, large companies, disclosing when they've been hacked. They don't necessarily disclose it to the SEC. They don't necessarily disclose it to the public. Does that need to change? Does corporate America need to come clean on how often they're being hacked and how damaging that is? Well, you're seeing an increase in requirements uh, on particularly public companies to disclose this type of information, to because it is critical. It's both critical for the investing public. It's critical for boards of directors to understand what's going on uh, in these companies to, to uh, address effective management. Uh, and it's critical to the public to understand just what steps companies are taking to make themselves more resilient uh, and to keep them from being victimized in the first place. All right, we'll leave it there. Lisa Monaco, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Scott, I'll toss it back over to you. Okay, Eamon, great stuff. Thank you very much. That's Eamon Javers for us with that exclusive interview. We'll be right back with Final Trades next. All right, let's do Final Trades now. Shannon, you are up first. Uh, Las Vegas Sands. Uh, the majority of the revenue comes from Asia. We believe that this is the best positioned gaming stock in the world, so that's why we like it. Uh, still playing for that reopen. Big time stock down about one and a third percent today. Liz Young of SoFi, the newly public company. Big week for you. Congrats. Big week for us. Thank you. Uh, I am leaning into the small cap strength with small cap value. The biggest sectors there are financials, industrials, and consumer discretionary. I like those for the year, and I like the small cap space over large cap. You feel like that's a, a symbol of risk coming back into the market if small caps can continue to do well? It's, it's a symbol of risk appetite, but also the cause of a crisis matters and the way that we went into it matters and the way that we come out of it matters. So small caps got hit the hardest. I think small businesses come out the strongest on the other side. Okay, good stuff. Thank you. Farmer Jim. Yeah, I'm having lunch after this, Scott. I may have to have a glass of wine with it after this show. You are running <laughs> through the finish line this week. I'm impressed. <laughs> Um, final, final trade is Raytheon Technologies for the same reason as Northrop Grumman and Boeing. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Jim. Enjoy. Pete? I'll give you a micro vision, Scott. We saw some call buying in there, and I think this is a great area right now in the markets. Anything in automobiles is doing very, very right, well, stuff. it seems, right great, now. Great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.